A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Gare out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little, it is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geber. Jewish History Soundbites. This is Yehudi Geber with another episode of Jewish History Soundbites. And this episode is a tribute to the great, uh, great Gadol, the great Sadik, great man, Rabbi David Feinstein, who just passed away. And um, big loss, a tremendous loss um, for the Jewish people, for the Jewish community. And therefore, we're going to speak a little bit about him, about his parents' home that he grew up in. Um, I just wanted to uh, start off before that, before I get to Reb David and Reb Moshe Feinstein, and um, a little bit about that, I want to um, read a few, uh, some feedback, some letters that I got from listeners, some some recent episodes, primarily from, just had at the end of last week, on Reb Nachum Partsavich, the Mira Shashiva. Um, so I got some very, very, quite a bit of uh, good feedback, some good stories. So I'll just share a few of the choice ones with you. I mentioned in the Reb Nachum episode that he had uh, he had sent a letter when he was sick to the Lubavitcher Rebbe to, uh, to, to daven for him, uh, that he should get better. And a listener sent me a short video, very interesting, of um, of a student of Reb Nachum who was a Lubavitcher Chassid, who I happen to have met a few times, and he, um, I never heard the story from him though, I saw it in the video, and how he described that um, apparently Reb Nachum actually visited the Lubavitcher Rebbe when he was in the United States, and the Lubavitcher Rebbe encouraged him to write his shiurim and publish them, and then he sent a message to him through his Chassid who was studying by Reb Nachum in the mirror, that he should continue saying shiurim, and Reb Nachum at that time was um, was was nervous because the doctors told him that he should take a break from saying his shiurim, and Reb Nachum wanted to not listen to the doctors because his shiurim was his life, and then just then he gets this message from the Rebbe that he should continue saying the shiurim, and that's going to give him strength, and that's going to keep him going, so his face lit up and he says, Baruch Shekivanti. That's, uh, that's great that I had the same idea that the Rebbe had to continue saying uh, the Shiur. Either way, that was very interesting, that uh, relationship there. 
Uh, apparently, also uh, there was it went back a generation before because when Reb Nachum was a little child, and his father was the Rav in Trakai, so the the previous Rebbe, the Rayats, um, the Friyadika Rebbe, he was in the area of Trakai, a nearby town, for um, the wedding of his his uh, daughter to Rebbe. I forgot his first name, Harnstein, one who was killed by the Nazis. Um, so, so he had, so the Friedrich Rebbe came to Trakai to pay his respects to the local rabbi, Rabbi Tsiari Pertsovich, and he came with his entourage, which included his other son-in-law, the future Rebbe. So it turns out that the future Rebbe had met Rabnachum when he was a child, when he was visiting uh, Rabnachum's father together with his father-in-law, the previous Rebbe. Either way, that's, that's that. So then we go on um, to another story, a great story. That Reb Nachum never sang Shabbos Miris. It was a, you know, it was a Litvak. He didn't, he didn't uh, sing Shabbos Miris. But there was one time a year, and Shabbos Chanukah, he would sing uh, Shabbos. He sang Moiz Tzur, and he sang the same tune to Moiz Tzur and Shabbos Chanukah every year. And one year, his son Reb Tzvi started a new song for Moiz Tzur, and Reb Nachum turns to his son and he said. If we can say simple, the simple old traditional way, then why are we looking for novel ways to sing the song? And in a certain way, that kind of typifies Reb Nachum's entire outlook on life and learning. So that's a great story. Also, and here's a third letter a story I got, and here I'll actually read it off. Um, just wanted to share a story I personally heard from Rabbi Yitzchak Helman Shlita. He related that Rabbi Nachum was so nervous and intimidated when talking to the briskerov that the change, the money, the change and keys in his pocket would make noise due to his shivering when speaking and learning with the Rav. Once after Rabbi Nachum left, one of the sons of the Rav asked his father, Why is he so nervous? He's saying good. He's, he's, his learning is, is very good. Why is he so nervous? To which the Rav replied, the reason that it's good, what he's saying, is because he is scared. In other words, this, the nervousness, the fear of standing in front of the Rav is what causes him to say a good pshat. Either way, those are some good stories about Rav Nachum that we got from the feedback. And one final thing, a clarification uh, I don't remember how long ago, a week or two ago, I had an episode about uh, about the Chazayin Ish. It was part one. And I mentioned, I think because of the sponsorship, was related to the elections. So I mentioned that the Chazayin Ish was the inspiration for the uh, approach that the Haredi community in Israel has towards the elections. And I wanted to clarify that it's not so simple that it's directly related to the Chazanish. The Chazanish is definitely the inspiration for many things in the outlook and worldview of the Haredi community in Israel, the ultra-Orthodox community in Israel. As far as actually voting for the elections, it's not so simple. It depends about the municipal, elect- municipal elections and the national elections, and there's different versions of what the Chazanish said, and we'll have to save that for part two, but I just didn't want it to be misleading that as, as I was saying, a historical uh, uh, you know, certainty about him and the election. So I just wanted to say that it's qualified and it's not so simple. Either way, again, one final last thing before we get back to Rabdavid David Feinstein. 
um, is that the the Jewish world suffered another great uh, leadership loss at the same time, um, where, where we lost Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs, the former chief rabbi of England. I think they call it the British Commonwealth, but you know it's it's really just England. Let's be honest. And um, and uh, but he was an incredible incredible leader, an amazing thinker and speaker and orator and writer and philosopher and really is multi talented and and you know uh, addressed in every type of audience and respected across the spectrum and as far as as far as uh, you know I'm concerned also he had a very deep appreciation for Jewish history very knowledgeable in Jewish history and also a tremendous appreciation of the importance of knowing and studying history and uh, in fact um some of his books, which were non-history books, was more philosophically oriented. Those are almost the only non-history books I've read in recent years because his books were so fantastic. So just wanted to mention that uh, tragedy as well. So we get back to Reb David. In fact, I had the privilege of meeting Reb David Feinstein once in my life. Uh, he was in Israel for a visit and his grandson tipped me off that he would be in the neighborhood for Shabbos, so I made it my business to to daven uh, Friday night at the shul that he was going to be attending. And uh, he wasn't the one who spoke in shul. Someone else spoke in the shul. And he sat quietly in his seat, and you just were awestruck by his simplicity and not 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 uh, trying to be the center of attention. And you saw the way he dressed. You know, he would have had a regular hat and a regular suit. Ultimate simplicity, and I, I was like in awe of him. I could barely daven that that uh, Friday night. I tried to stand near him so I could observe him. And after davening, I went over to him, and I was still learning then, so I had what to talk to him about. Um, luckily, and uh, I asked him uh, several uh, questions, halachic related questions, which, of course, with this simple clarity and as if he had just opened that safer today and and answering it and quoting all the sources it was an, an amazing experience just the 10 minutes that I had privileged to speak to him um unforgettable and everyone uh, was coming over to him to ask for brachas for their children while we were talking and uh it was a very very you know big privilege that I had um but unfortunately it was only that one time but he was known for his simplicity. You know, he would, and when he lived in the Lower East Side, he would take you know the subways in Manhattan all alone. He had to go somewhere. He would, he would just get on the subway. You know, and he, he had no no airs, no airs about him. He once caught a couple of children stealing candy from his desk in the base measures, so he made sure that the next Shabbos he bought an extra bag of candy, so they would have more money, more excuse me, more candy to Freudian slip, uh, more candy to uh, to take. When they would come looking, um, and uh, and that's how he was—very uh, human, very, very real, very uh, simple, no shtick. And uh, he grew up, of course, in the you know one of the greatest Torah leaders in the last generation. Someone who we'll have to get to speak about also one day, Reb Moshe Feinstein and his wife Reb Sima Feinstein. Uh, so Reb David actually was born in Luban, where his father was the rabbi. He grew up in the Soviet Union. In the communist Soviet Union, until he was about seven or eight years old, his father was the rabbi there for over 15 years under the communists. 
In other words, the community again. There's a lot to a lot to to, to know, but we know, we'll only touch on it a little bit in the context of Reb David. But hopefully, we'll get to speak about Ramesha some other time. But there's a lot to to just in that early period of of a rabbi under communism. There's a lot to learn from and and, and uh, historical importance. The fact that the community hired Reb in 1921. In other words. It's four years after the revolution. It's at the peak of the Russian Civil War. And there are Jewish communities in the Soviet Union that are hiring rabbis, not not keeping their old rabbis, hiring new rabbis. Um, there's, uh, Luban is a small little shtetl not far from Minsk and Slutsk, uh, deep into Russia, into Belarus today. Uh, but it produced uh, uh, quite a few impressive um, Torah leaders. Ramesh, of course, was the rabbi there, but Rabbi Rucham Levavitz, the entire Levavitz family, Rabbi Rucham Levavitz and Mashkiach the Mir came from Luban, and, uh, and interestingly enough, Rabbi Rucham's close student from the Mir, Rabbi David Pavarsky, who was later the Rashiv and Panovich, also originated from Luban. They're all Luban natives. In fact, Rabbi Rucham's brother uh, had a son, Rabbi Ruvain Levavitz, who was, of course, also a Luban native, who married uh, Rebetzin Sima Feinstein's sister. Rebetzin Sima was also from Luban. You know, Ramesha married her in Luban. So they all, all these local uh, Shiduchim and um, Reb Ruvain Levavitz married a, a uh, sister of Rebetzin Sima. So they were brothers-in-law. And Reb Ruvain Levavitz later moved to the United States and he was a rabbi in Brooklyn and he was Ramesha's host when he first arrived in the United States. Um, a rabbi for many years. Um, so Ramesha um, was a when he became the rabbi in Luban, under the, like I said, already under the communists, he was a still single. Uh, he would, in fact, when someone would get married in in uh, Luban, the rabbi of the town would be the Masada Kedushin, would marry them off. So it was a single, it was a single rabbi. He was he was uh, not married, and he was marrying off the the gay young couples. Interesting situation. A couple of years later, he had he got sick with typhus. And uh, one of the leaders of the Jewish community there, Yaakov Meishe Kastanovich, who was one of the ones who hired Ramesh, he was the Shaychet, he was the Mayel in the town, he was one of the heads of the community, and, and um, Ramesh was the rabbi in Strubin, where his father was the rabbi beforehand, and, and Yaakov Meishe Kastanovich was involved in bringing him over to Luban. And when Ramesh got sick with typhus, he had his daughter, uh, Sima, uh, Kastanovich helped, uh, you know, help around Ramesha get to get better, and that led to the shidduch, and of course, which is what Ramesha Kastanovich was trying to do, and they got married. So, so the um, he was a special man, uh, continued being a sheikhid and a mile under the communists, which also wasn't so simple. And for a period of time, he was arrested, and he actually taught Ramesha how to shecht, so that even when he's arrested and even when he's taken. Um, there should still be kosher meat in the town. Ramesha, as the rabbi, actually had to shech chickens for a period of time um, to when his when his father-in-law wasn't around. Um, his father-in-law before the war, before World War One, there was a a boy, a teenager in the town who had we would call him at risk today, or uh, uh, you know had left the path of traditional Judaism, was no longer religious. And he was sick, and um, I forget which type of disease it was, but they needed to send him to some sort of sanitarium in the Crimea where they where they dealt with this illness. And the climate was better there, and the doctors were there. 
And it costs a lot of money to, to ship anyone down there and to pay for the treatments. Now, the way it worked in the town was in a lot of the shtetls at that time was that if some member of the community was sick, they would raise the money within the town to send him down to the Crimea. And here, because this boy was rebellious, he was a revolutionary, he was not religious, so no one wanted to raise the money for him. He was already outside the Jewish community. Rabbi Yaakov Meshach said, no, he's our brother, he's part of the community, it doesn't make a difference what challenges he's had in his life and that he's no longer religious, the community is responsible for him. And he went door to door, raised money for him, sent him down to the sanitarium in the Crimea, and the boy got better. Years later, many, many years later, where Maisha was the rabbi, and he was arrested by the local communist officials, and he was accused of being a capitalist. Uh, because, first of all, he was a rabbi, a religious figure, and second of all, because the way that the community, like many towns in Russia, supported their rabbi was that his wife had a, the yeast monopoly, the only one who was allowed to sell yeast. And this way, it gave them a source of uh, income because the community couldn't afford to pay him. So, so the, um, so he was inter- so he was brought in, he was arrested, and his interrogator starts speaking to him, and he figures out who he is, who he is, who is he married to, who is his father-in-law, his father was still alive, and this, and this interrogator calls in his subordinates and says, are you crazy? You're bringing in this man and accusing him of being a, cop- a capitalist? He's the only true communist in the entire Soviet Union. Do you know who his father-in-law is? His, meaning his father-in-law was the only, is the only true communist in the entire Soviet Union. Do you know what he did for my brother? My brother was a revolutionary. He was not religious. He was not part of the Jewish community anymore. And he got sick. And this man's father-in-law went door to door to raise money to send him to the sanitarium uh, and, and get better in, down in the Crimea. So we're, he's being released. And uh, so, that, you know, the story like that, uh, you know, def- definitely paid off in the end. By the way, Ramesha was, at that time, was extremely particular about following the rules of the communist regime. He never ha- held foreign currency. He always, when anyone would send, any of his relatives would send him mo- money from the United States, it would, he would always demand the receipt at the post office, which he brought to his interrogation years later. He saved all the receipts. Um and he insisted that he keeps all the laws of the country, um, uh, you know, which which he you know, he wrote about and about how important it was, and that uh, it was important for his safety and and what he believed was the right thing. His father-in-law, Rabbi Akumaisha Kastanovich, and some of his children, some of meaning Ramesha's wife's siblings, most of Ramesha's siblings. Uh, were all and their families were all killed by the Nazis uh, during the war. They stayed behind. Or Mordechai uh, Feinstein, or, or, or Moshe's younger brother, was the rabbi in Shklov, actually passed away in Siberia. But most of the other ones were killed by the Nazis. The community in Luban, um, Moshe would deliver shiurim uh, to in Gemara and Mishnayos and everything during the years. Again, under communist rule, there was a shul still open. Eventually, the communists closed the shul, so they had a smaller shul open. Um, in a, you know, in the they they paid the rabbi with the yeast monopoly. It was very hard financially um, for Amisha. He had to live in a small room. Eventually, was, after there's a turning point in 1930, the the communist uh, regime got much stronger on religious life, against religious life, and and whatever was remaining as rabbis. Amisha insisted that rabbis must stay because any rabbi that resigned and left the Soviet Union 
the the communists would publicize it and say, look, another rabbi has seen the light and is no longer the rabbinical leader of his community. So Moshe felt that it's important to stay as long as possible. Um, eventually his father, Ramesh's father, passed away, which was a big blow for him. He was in nearby in Straubin, and in the 1920s he passed away. But Ramesha did succeed in keeping a mikvah open, because when the, the communists closed the mikvah, they built a public uh, bathhouse. And Ramesha knew one of the engineers, who was Jewish, and he secretly arranged with him that it should be a kosher mikvah under extenuating circumstances. And he advised um, everyone to use it. And people would come far and wide because in the entire Minsk region, this was one of the only mikvahs. And the word went about in a secret way amongst the Jewish communities under the Soviet Union that there's a bidyeved kosher mikvah in Luban. Um, that Sir Maisha was able to keep the spark of Jewish life going under communism. Um, there was a shul open for a period of time. There was even a cheder open for a period of time, but that closed already in the 1920s. And like I said, in 1930 was a turning point, uh, and things got much worse. Now, Ramesh himself was very happy with his learning. In a sense, it was even his golden years. He learned quietly in his home all day, the entire day, from morning to night, wrote his tshuvas, wrote his, his uh, chidushim. He left the Soviet Union eventually because there was no future for his children's Jewish life. There was no Jewish education. There was no future for any Jewish education for his kids, and he could not sacrifice that. Reb David Feinstein, when he left the Soviet Union with his parents and his family, when he was seven, eight years old, he knew Aleph Bays and a little bit of Chumash. That's it, when they left. And his older sisters knew even less. They barely even knew Aleph Bays. So you're talking about it was impossible to, to keep, sustain any sort of Jewish life. That also says, uh, you know, about Reb David, about how he he came he came from that from communism from under the communists to America of of the 1930s and then you know and then he became one of the greatest Torah leaders in the entire world, um, you know they when Ramesha said that his children he was scared to even have them participate in the Pesach Seder because it was illegal because it was, they were allowed to conduct one but they were not allowed to have the children there because it was considered propaganda. Um, so Ramesha decided he has to leave. So in 1936, he makes that decision, and he sends out, he wants to save his, his farim. So he send, he, 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 you know, he breaks up his, tears up his notebooks into, you know, several individual pages each, and he sends them as letters to his family members in the United States, who were the ones who were living there, um, and so that they should keep it. They would understand that it, the censors would think that it's just a, a family letter. They wouldn't realize it's his farm, and he was able to salvage much of his writings, not all of it, in that fashion. His uh, wife's brother, Abnechemia Katz, was a rabbi in Toledo, Ohio, and he tried to arrange for Ramesha to get uh, entry visas to the United States. In the meantime, Ramesha's former rebbe, Rabbi Zalman Meltzer, was in, was in Israel, in Palestine, in Eretz Yisrael, who was trying to arrange for Ramesha to get visas uh, certificates to get into Israel, to, to Palestine. Um, so they're working from both ends. And Reb Nechemi Katz, uh, he was in Ohio, so he had, you know, he worked with the famous Republican senator, uh, the son of the former president, uh, Robert Taft, who was the senator, 
and he uh, had had a connection with Andrei Gromyko, who was a senior Soviet diplomat, first in the United States and later in the United Nations, and then he was he was a foreign minister later on in the fifties and sixties. Uh, but he was very close with Molotov. So you talk about the whole international governments are trying to get Ramesha Feinstein out of of Russia. Nehemi Katz eventually told his community in Toledo that he's resigning as rabbi so that they can hire Ramesha as rabbi so that the U.S. immigration officials can see that he's being hired for a rabbinical position and this way he would be able to come in above the quota. That's so much uh, dedication from Nehemi Katz had used to, to get Ramesha to be able to get him and his family out. Ramesha traveled to Moscow, not in rabbinical garb. He wanted to go very unobtrusively and to apply for the exit visa from the Soviet Union, which he eventually obtained. He even said, even though that the custom of Valozhin, his father, Abdavid, was a student of the Valozhin Yeshiva, and he said the custom in Valozhin was that not to uh, visit Kvarim, which, you know, is questionable. I think the Nitziv did visit Kvarim, so you have to know. But uh, that's what Ramesha said. That was his father's custom. So, But he's, before he left the Soviet Union, he went to visit for one last time his father's kever. Um, but, and then he left uh, Luban. The community escorted him out, and many of them were crying. They saw it, it was like the end of Jewish life. Their beloved rabbi was leaving uh, you know, under duress. You know, he had no choice at that time. Um, before Amisha left, it's amazing the dedication he had to his community. He hand-wrote a Jewish calendar with all the Jewish holidays for the next 18 years. And he handed over to the Jewish community and said, at least now you'll have a calendar. You'll know when the holidays are. You'll know when everything is, even if I'm not here. He hand-wrote it out for them for 18 years. Unfortunately, they only used it for four or five years because the entire community was wiped out by the Nazis uh, during uh, their invasion of the Soviet Union. Um, Ramesh ends up in Riga. He had several siblings who were living there. Um, and then he takes a visit to Vilna to go to Reb Chaim Eizer to take his blessing before Reb Chaim Eizer had already heard about him. Reb Chaim Eizer uh, received a halachic uh, query from him and his brother, Reb Mordechai Feinstein of Shklov. And Reb Chaim Eizer said, Deep in Russia, deep in communist Russia, there are two Feinstein brothers who study Torah and lead Jewish communities just like in old times. So Rabbi Meiser already knew him. Um, and while he was in Riga, um, Ramesha was offered the position in Dvinsk. The Ragachov, Rabesif Rosen, had just passed away, and he was offered to take over his rabbinical position, but he did not want to stay in Eastern Europe. He didn't see a future for Jewish life there, and he leaves to the United States. And to save his children's uh, future chinuch, and he enrolls them in, uh, you know, he sends sends them to 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 schools in in New York. They settle down in East New York in Brooklyn. Ramesh himself went to Toledo to fulfill his promise. He was only there for a few weeks. Um, till he, officially, he was the rabbi for a few weeks, and then Reb Nehemiah Katz, of course, uh, retook his position. Now Ramesh went back to New York, but first. Then he went, he had a position in Cleveland, he was a Rebbe there, a whole story also, and then he went back to East New York and Brooklyn, then later on he settles down in the Lower East Side and gets the lifelong association with MTJ, Mesiftet Ferris Yushlai, where he sends his children and where Abdavid um, uh, would grow up and become synonymous with the place. He, when everyone else left, Abdavid never left the Lower East Side, 
Um, I even spoke to an old Lower East, Lower East Sider, and I said, wow, you get to live in the Lower East Side, you get to be in the place where Moshe was, and he's like, no, it's not that exciting. The only reason I stay is because of Reb David. He's, he's keeping the community of the Lower East Side going, and he's the only reason I stay. So that's a little bit about, uh, not so much Reb David Feinstein himself, but the background, the world that he came from, and his family, and his father, um, and it should be a... So this was Yehuda Geber with Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at Yehuda at YehudaGeber.com for questions, comments, sources, sponsorships, lectures, virtual tours. Uh, uh, you can subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites on Podbean or your favorite podcast platform. Follow us on Twitter at Soundbites, and I hope you enjoyed.